Good afternoon, and we are glad you're here with Manhattan Presbyterian Church and worshiping the Lord today. It's great to have you here, and uh, as Travis mentioned, we'll be on Easter, getting to meet in the morning. At 9.45 on Easter morning, we'll, we'll gather in uh, the East Campus of the, the high school here, and, and we will worship our Lord on the Resurrection Day as we celebrate Christ is risen. I look forward to that. So these early services, we've been looking at what we identify as our, our core values, in other words, these are things that are very important to us as a church, things that will shape going forward, how we think about things, what our priorities are. Really, these are simple ideas, uh, which we believe that Scripture shows should be important to any church. And our core values begin with what is called the means of grace. In a sense, it's just a collective term for the Word of God, prayer and the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and, and baptism. Also of great importance to us that we've looked at in the past is covenant community and corporate worship as we're gathering to do even, even now. And in the future, we'll be looking at serving others, serving the community, uh, each other, uh, as well as church planting and, and missions because we find those to be uh, very important values for the church as well. And so today we are looking at the topic of making disciples. It's a, a bit broad. This is seen all over the scriptures, really. But the importance of this is seen very clearly in uh, a well-known portion of Scripture called the Great Commission. And that's going to be our primary text today as we, we work through this. It's found at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew 28. And we'll begin reading in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always." To the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What I found tough about preaching different books of the Bible each time we come together is there is this sense of context that needs to be brought into it each time. That we need to establish if we're going to really understand the text in the right way. And today that's especially true. Our text comes after some amazing events. You know, the book of Matthew is 28 chapters long, and we're looking at the last five verses. At this point, the, the Jews had just crucified Jesus, killing the man that the disciples had hoped and believed was going to be the Messiah to redeem Israel. Uh, and because the disciples also are followers of Christ, the, the Jews were, were ready to kill the disciples as well. So you can imagine just the fear that they're feeling at this point. On top of that, the tension between the Jews and the Roman government at this point is very high. See, the Jews want freedom. They want to be out from under the Roman government. And the Roman leaders wanted these strange people called Jews to simply be peaceful, to cause no trouble. The main religion of Rome at the time was emperor worship, and the emperor was Tiberius. So there is some similarities to our country. We're saying, though, despite popular opinion, uh, America is not modern-day Israel. The United States as a nation is not the people of God. However, the social climate 
has some similarities to our country today. Both Rome and America are non-Christian nations, but there are many Christians living within those, those boundaries. Uh, Rome was antagonistic to Christians. Uh, our country is nowhere close to the antagonistic sense, but increasingly the, the United States is becoming antagonistic towards Christians as well. Uh, and I want you to see these similarities so that you see that when Jesus gives the Great Commission, it's into this difficult and, and dangerous country that he does so. It's an important distinction to know that these are the last instructions that Jesus gives to his people, to the church, to those who he has purchased with his own blood. These words are very intentional that he chooses. And what does Jesus give with his last instructions? He urges his followers, the church, to move forward towards a mission, the mission. We often get distracted, but the mission is simple. Just as Jesus made disciples, we are now to make disciples. This is often wrongly understood to mean simply make converts. And it's given rise to a push to see men and women make immediate decisions by raising hands, signing cards, and walking aisles. And so notice carefully here that Jesus didn't say, go therefore and make decisions. He said, go therefore and make disciples. And I don't say that so we can self-righteously pride ourselves for not doing evangelism a certain way. But to point out that that's only a tiny aspect of the mission that Jesus has called his people to. It's like if Flora called me and told me to get the kids dressed for school. And I responded by putting them in clean underwear and shoes and sending them out the door, right? In that case, I, I may have begun the mission, but it's pretty clear I didn't complete the mission. Not the one that, that she actually gave. See, discipleship is much more difficult mission than mere evangelism. Uh, but discipleship is the actual mission that Jesus has called us to. Notice also that this wasn't given to a special group of people called evangelists or, or missionaries. It was to the disciples of Christ. And it's a perpetual calling to all who would be called disciples of Christ. And this includes you and I. So let's look at this text in more detail, starting in verse 16. Look at it with me if you have your Bibles with you or in the bulletin if you need. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. Remember, the disciples were afraid for the life. They, they saw the Lord put to death, actually killed for what he was, he was preaching. And they know that the reality is that any one of them could be next. And yet, Jesus directs them to go to this mountain, not hiding, not underground somewhere, not out in a, a hidden place, but really out in the open. And so we see that even at this moment, they're going to where Jesus has sent them. They are showing obedience and action right from this very, very first point. In verse 17, if you look at it, it tells us that what they did on the mountain after Jesus shows up. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Honestly, that they worshipped is expected, right? You've seen him killed and suddenly... He shows up on this mountain to speak to you. Your obvious response is to worship. What's really surprising here is that some doubt it. Jesus, this man that they've seen do countless miracles, shows up, risen from the dead, and some doubt. That's amazing to me. I thought about this, and I think maybe they just don't believe their eyes. 
Maybe they just can't make sense of the resurrection any more than people who struggle to do so today. What I love about this, though, is how Jesus doesn't condemn them. He didn't reject in this moment those who failed to worship him. Instead, he speaks these words to encourage and to draw them back to who he is and back to the mission that he is calling them to. And verse 18 here says, And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. This is the foundation of the mission that Jesus gives to his church, to his disciples. Now, these words are an echo of Daniel 7:14, which tells us this, To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Notice the scope of, of that text, and, and the text we're looking at today. It's this wide-reaching, it's absolute, it's complete. All authority belongs to Jesus. Because God the Father has given all authority to his Son. You ever wonder what this all authority is? That's one of those phrases that just seems so general that Okay, he's in charge of everything, right? I want to show you a few aspects of what this means. In Mark 2.5, we learn that this all authority includes the forgiveness of sins. He does so to the paralytic man. There are other places where we see this, that Christ has the authority to forgive sin. In 1 Timothy 2.5, we learn that Jesus has sole authority to mediate between God and man on our behalf. In Luke 24, 45, we learn that Jesus has authority to open the hearts and the minds of men and women. In John 15, 26, we learn that Jesus has authority to send the Holy Spirit to dwell in his people, in you. In John 10, 27 and 28, we learn that Jesus has authority to give the gift of eternal life to whoever he so desires. And in John 6.40, we learn that Jesus has the authority to raise up Christians from the grave on the last day. And this list could go on and on until every area of authority is placed under the good and sovereign rule of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to know this, because this authority is the basis of the word, therefore, that we see in verse 19. This authority establishes the great commission that we have been called to. Matthew 28, 19, look back with that, then brings us to the point that I want to focus on today. The first section tells us, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Usually this is a, a missionary text, right? It's go somewhere other than where you are right now, and while you're there, make disciples. And I often see this verse made into a sort of word art, I Honestly, love the word art kind of stuff. But when you see this, you see the word go is usually in huge letters. That becomes the main emphasis of this. So that you read it with this almost anxiety-driven shout sort of way. This, go, therefore, and make disciples. We must understand this properly, though. The reality is we can't be making disciples if we're always going to faraway places. Let me explain that. I know it sounds odd at first. I know this is even a bit of a ridiculous example, but what would happen if you read this verse and you decided that you should go to Jamaica and make disciples? And so you get on a plane and you go to Jamaica. And the moment you get off the plane, you open up your Bible to Matthew 28 and you read this verse. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
Uh, and you read this and you think, okay, well, I'm in Jamaica. I need to go somewhere else, right? Do you get on the plane and leave Jamaica and go to Nigeria or some other place? And I realize that is a ridiculous example. My point is this. We can wrongly overvalue the going at the expense of making disciples. And again, don't misunderstand me. If God has called you to missions this summer or with, with your life, that is fantastic and we support you. Do go. Do be faithful to proclaim the gospel. Do go to love God, to love others. And, and do go and make disciples in some far off land. Uh, one of our values we're going to be talking about in a few weeks is, is missions and church plannings. We believe in that and we love that. However, today I, I want the focus to be a little different. I want us to look at the often less emphasized portion of the scripture, the, the make disciples. You're here right now. This is where God has called you, and I'm absolutely sure of it because I'm looking at you and I can see you. How's that for discerning the will of God at this very moment? I mean, with, with absolute certainty. Um, this is where God had you at this exact moment. The reality, though, is you may have grown up in this town, or, or you may have left and returned to Manhattan. You may have grown up in faraway cities or states or countries, and now you find that God has brought you to Manhattan, Kansas. Yes, to the middle of absolutely nowhere is what the rest of the country thinks about this. But if you're a, a Christian, a disciple of Christ, then the call on your life here and now is to make disciples in the city, in Manhattan, the Little Apple, and the surrounding areas. So as we look at this, I want you to understand movement is clearly in view here in this verse, right? But movement doesn't always mean going great distances or faraway places. It might mean going to class tomorrow with a view towards the reality that Jesus has authority over that campus. And you have a call to make disciples. It might mean remembering that Jesus has authority when you walk into your office or your lab or wherever it is you go tomorrow morning. Or while you mother your children with a mind focus that it is Christ who has all authority as you shepherd the hearts of your children. When Jesus says we are to go and to make disciples of all nations, he absolutely means faraway places. But he also means our neighbors. And so my challenge to you today is towards the more common, the often neglected opportunity to make disciples here now. So what is a disciple? Stephen Smallman, writing for By Faith Magazine, gives a, a great but simple definition. He says, A disciple of Jesus is a person who has heard the call of Jesus and has responded by repenting, believing the gospel, and following him. One of the things we see about discipleship is that our discipleship is going to look different for different people based on where they are at currently. If I told you to go build a house and I gave you a certain address and that was, that was all I gave you, then you show up and you find just a wooded lot. You know, the first thing you'd need to begin with is clearing trees. However, if the lot was already clear of trees, one of the first things you might do is lay a foundation. If you show up and you find that there is a foundation, it's solid. Someone's already put up the framing, the, the house-shaped kind of design. One of the first things you would do is, is start to put up walls. What this means is that if someone's not a Christian, our discipleship starts with painting a picture of our sin and our need for a Savior. Matt Chandler, who's a, a pastor in North Texas today, he's a grown man today, when he was back in high school, he knew very little of Christianity. And uh, one of the great stories he tells is that he met this guy named Chris, and Chris was a Christian. And like I said, he knew very little of Christianity. And one day, Chris stops by his locker and just kind of conversationally tells him, I need to tell you about Jesus 
when do you want to do that? It wasn't a question of, you know, maybe I'll do this. It was just, yeah, you know what? I need to tell you about Jesus. When do you want to do that? Let's make an appointment. And they met, and he told them about Christ. He told them the gospel, and yet it wasn't until a year later, after much discipling, after learning much more about who God is, about the gospel, when God finally softened his heart to believe the gospel, to believe that Jesus died for his sin. Here's the thing, though. Even with the beautiful and caring boldness of this student, it wasn't that one-time conversation. It wasn't, I'll share the gospel, and that's it. But it was an ongoing discipleship that continued after that. It was a conversation much later that that led to to him really believing the gospel. And so we see this ongoing work of discipleship uh, as a means to evangelism in that case. Looking back at our text, this text just beautifully outlines what discipleship is. Uh, Look again to verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And we keep reading and we get to see how to do that. It says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so the Great Commission is to make disciples, and here is how we are to do that. First, by baptizing them in the name of the Trinity, and second, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. So let's look at baptism first. Baptism is primarily about the grace of God. Does it make a public statement about our faith in God? Uh, Of course it does. And so when someone who has never been baptized comes to faith, we will rejoice and baptize them in the presence of the church that we all might rejoice with them. But like I said, baptism is primarily about the grace of God. Think about it. Uh, Baptism, whether we're talking about adults or, or children in the covenant community, is a passive sacrament. We receive baptism in the same way that we receive grace and forgiveness at the hands of God. And so in this text, we see this connection between baptism and and discipleship. When I received baptism as an adult in my life, that was a step towards obedience to Christ, who calls us to be baptized. It it marked me. It was a a sign and a seal that I belonged to the covenant, that I belonged to the people of God. It was a part of, of that discipleship. When my son received baptism as an infant, it was about discipleship. It marked him as belonging to the covenant community. It meant that he would be discipled, he'd be taught the word of God, he would be prayed for and be prayed with so that he would grow as a disciple of Christ in the community of the church. Baptism is part of this making disciples. If you've never been baptized and in faith you believe that Jesus died for your sins, let me encourage you to do so as part of your discipleship so that we might rejoice with you which is really just an encouragement towards what we see as the second aspect of discipleship and Jesus' parting command to his people. If you look again at verse 20, it says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Because of the focus on the evangelistic aspect of discipleship today, this command out of the mouth of Christ to his people is is often neglected. If we're to make disciples, and we are, We must be teaching each other to obey all that Jesus commanded us. What this means is that God is to be our master, our our Lord, to exercise that authority over us that we've just seen. And this first aspect of discipleship is certainly ourselves. If you're not a disciple of Jesus yourself, you certainly won't be able to show anyone else how to be one. In high school, I played on a, a soccer team. I wasn't great, but I was on the team. And we had this 
fantastic coach that knew just about everything about soccer. And he taught us many things, but we also had this assistant coach. He was a, a lifelong football coach. The school assigned him to us for the year. I don't know if you drew the short straw or how he ended up there, but he was a fantastic football coach, but he couldn't care less about soccer. I'm pretty sure he couldn't know less about soccer. I remember one awkward week when our head coach was out of town for something, and, and this man was put in charge, and, and you could see in his eyes just kind of that panic of, what am I supposed to do with these people? And it was his job to actually coach us for the week, and he didn't even know where to begin. We didn't do anything that week. We went to practice, and we stood around, and that was about it. He didn't even know where to begin. It was an absolute worthless week as far as soccer is concerned. My point is that if you're not an actual disciple of Christ, then you will be of no use in making disciples. It's a case of the blind leading the blind, which is not a very good plan. And so the question I want you to ask in your heart at this moment is, how in my life am I making my own discipleship an actual priority? When and where am I hearing the Word of God? I realize there's some degree of preaching to the choir right now as you sit here, right? But to take that question further, who's challenging me to greater obedience to the Word of God? And I ask that, and it's going to take some time to think about it. And I want you to think about those questions and find answers in your life. How in your life are you making your own discipleship an actual priority? Looking again to our text, I want you to notice something. It doesn't say that we are to teach disciples to merely know the commands of Christ. It's not just about knowledge. You certainly need to know them. But it says that we are to teach them to observe the commands of Christ. That is a call to obedience. Kevin DeYoung, speaking in regard to this, says, we are teaching the nations to follow Jesus' commands. The Great Commission is about holiness. God wants the world to know Jesus, believe in Jesus, and obey Jesus. We don't take the Great Commission seriously if we don't help each other grow in obedience. Now, this isn't about moralism. Moralism neglects the grace of God. It cares nothing for the gospel. It requires performance that is detached from the grace of God, and the aim is gaining the approval, the, the love uh, of God. The obedience that we see in the Great Commission is a response to the love of Christ for us. It's not done in the hope that Jesus will die on the cross for us. It's a response to the unexpected truth that Jesus did die on the cross for us. And in that act of love has freed his disciples from the chains of sin so that we can now live in obedience. So what does this mean for Manhattan Press? We say this is a core value of the church because we desire to see God use us, all of us, to make disciples. Here's what that looks like. First, weekly expository preaching. That's a big word. It just means that we, we want to preach through the books of the Bible, not topics, with a goal really to understanding and applying the scriptures. And really, it's, it's like Paul says in, in the book of Acts, that we don't want to shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And we believe that by preaching through books of the Bible one at a time, that God will assure that we declare the entire, the whole counsel of God to you. Yes, I do see the irony that in a topical sermon, I am telling you how important it is to do expository sermons. Going through these core values, I think, has been helpful. It helps us set vision, understand really, you know, where the church is going, what's important to us. But I am so excited that when we get to the end of this, we're going to begin preaching through a book of the Bible. And if you're wondering, it's going to be on June 1st this summer, and we'll be preaching through the book of Philippians. It'll be 
the first one. I'm excited about that. I hope you will be too. Another way that we desire to be making disciples is weekly worship. That points always back to the beauty of our Savior, always back to the gospel. When you take part in the service, you, you might not even realize this, but all throughout that liturgy, we have scripture all throughout that. We want you every week, no matter what we're preaching on, uh, that you hear the gospel. When we partake in the Lord's Supper later, you're going to be reminded of your sins. You're going to be reminded of your saved. You're going to be reminded of the gospel week in and week out. So we see that as something very important. We also believe that smaller gatherings will serve in our discipleship. And to be honest, we don't know the details of that. And so we ask for your prayer and wisdom as we consider how that will actually be implemented. But the priority, the, the goal, is, is discipleship. We want to see... People at various places of maturity, growing in their understanding of the gospel, growing in their love for Christ, growing in their obedience to the commands of Christ. Our plan of discipleship includes Christian education. I don't mean a Christian school by that, but that we're educated from, from children to a great age. And part of that is first to just prepare and challenge parents in the discipleship of their children, in their home, in their daily life, that we know how to do that and that we can do that well. Uh, second, as a community, to assist in the, the discipleship, discipleship of children through teaching, through worship training, and, and relationships. I love to see you interact with my children when they're able to hear the, you know, the words of Christ, the words of Scripture, to be encouraged and just to get to witness that in your life. It, it means so much. Uh, also to provide adult Christian education as Bible studies or trustworthy book studies, even Scripture-driven discussions on various topics and points of theology. Uh, not as a one-size-fits-all program, but uh, just a part of the, the rhythm of our lives that we're going to be dealing with these issues and helping each other think through them. And So we desire to find times and places to come together, to pray together, to seek God's will together, and to seek His constant intervention in our lives. Part of our view towards discipleship is serving others, which we're going to look at in greater detail in a few weeks. Uh, and one major aspect to consider today, though, is community. It's a part of our discipleship. For discipleship to happen in this covenant community, we must be willing to share our struggles. Timothy Keller has said that churches should feel more like the waiting room for a doctor and less like a waiting room for a job interview. Think about it. For job interviews, we try to look as competent and as impressive as we can. Our weaknesses are buried or hidden. In the doctor's waiting room, the assumption is that everyone there is sick and needs help. Um, this is much closer to the reality of what's going on in church. You can look around this sanctuary and see people who have it all together. But your eyes are deceiving you. I'm not asking you to shout out your struggles. That would be awkward right now, right? But in the community of the church, I'm asking that you let down your walls so that you can be lovingly encouraged. And I'm asking you to lovingly encourage those who sit with you in the doctor's waiting room when they let down their walls. As we're living in community, as we meet together during the week, as we go out in the community, as we share meals, let us seek to encourage one another in the obedience to Christ. One often overlooked aspect of this is by example. People learn a lot by example. Discipleship's no different. We tend to worry when we realize this and just think, oh man, do not imitate me. We don't want that. That doesn't matter. People will imitate you. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 actually encourages imitation. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I know, I thought of it too. I'm not Paul, right? But let me encourage you to embrace this. To embrace the basic fact that others will imitate you. 
In 1 Timothy 4.12, this imitation is expected and seen as a great discipling tool. It says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Let your words, let your actions, how you love, your faith in Christ and the purity of your life be an example to others. Embrace that your children learn to pray by listening to you pray. Embrace that your friends learn how a disciple of Christ responds to rudeness and stress by how you respond. Embrace that college students are learning about Christian marriage and parenting from watching our examples. Embrace that others will learn how to respond when they sin by watching the way you respond to sin. Embrace that we are disciples in process, while at the same time, we are disciplers in the process of making disciples because Jesus has called us to that task. From a church perspective, Colossians 1.28 is a, a huge goal of ours. It says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We don't care where you are in your walk with Christ today. And by that, I don't mean that we don't care about you, but that wherever you are, that's where we want to start. We care that you are growing. Our desire is to see that everyone grow to be mature followers of Christ who live this life with a view towards the eternal life they are to live with Christ. That that is their value. See, the last thing Jesus does in this text is remind them of his forever presence with us. He says in verse 20, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is always with you. That should be a great encouragement. Jesus is with you when you are suffering ridicule for standing by biblical convictions. Jesus is with you when you are asking the spiritually blind to look and see Christ. Jesus is with you when you live in obedience to his commands. And Jesus is with you when you have failed to obey. It's in those moments that we need to remember that Jesus is always with us. No one who is sick runs away from the doctor. And so after failure, we may run to Jesus, run to him, because he has all authority in heaven and earth. And he lays down his life for his disciples, including all who are here today, who through faith rely on him alone. Brothers and sisters, may we be disciples who are making disciples in obedience to the Great Commission, so that God is glorified and we are satisfied in all that he is for us.